so Alex, we got Greg on the line. What do you want to ask him? On the financing side, was it difficult coming out of being a W-2 coming into commercial investing? Was it difficult to get that first loan or were you able to rely on your partner? We are looked at not only as a property, but we're looked at as a group of investors. The net worth and liquidity doesn't necessarily have to do with an individual. It has to do with the group that is buying the property. I guess that's one aspect of why partnering can be important because you may have the net worth, you may not have the liquidity. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe, and I'm very excited for today's show. It's one of our Ask the Expert episodes. we got two great people on the line with us today. we got Greg Scully and Alex Darst. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. Thank you. All right. And as is tradition, we're going to put our experienced investor in the hot seat first. So, Greg, that's you. And so let's start out by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Greg Scully with Real Wealth Solutions, a small team doing syndications in the apartment and also the RV space. We also property manage a portion of our portfolio. So we are now full-time commercial real estate investors out of Johnson City, Tennessee, by way of Alaska. Mm -hmm. We were in Alaska for 40 years up until about three years ago. Did W-2 work for 20 years, slowly transitioned into working for ourselves, first with a a small retail business back in Palmer, Alaska that did not go as well as we liked, and then kind of started looking around. Took the big deep dive into real estate with a Than Merrill Flip This House conference, Mm -hmm. Uh, did the uh, two-day thing, and just went down the rabbit hole from there. Eventually uh, got into a couple education platforms that Mm -hmm. brought us to multifamily. First deal landed in Tennessee. It was a bit of a bear. So I traveled back and forth for about a year before the wife and I relocated down here. We'll say semi-permanently. Nice, nice. So when you say we, are you, are you talking about you and your wife or do you have another business partner? Who Who's the we in this? We, uh, Real Wealth Solutions is myself, my wife, and our main partner, Darren Light, who mm-hmm. uh, hails out of the Knoxville area. Okay. So we have been working together, not exclusively, but almost exclusively, certainly in the apartment and RV space. Darren, Kim, and I work pretty much on everything together. Okay. And you say you started flipping. I think a lot of people start at that spot. What got you into flipping? And then the, the follow-on question to that is what you got you out of flipping and made you decide you wanted to move on to, to multifamily? Yeah, it, we didn't start flipping. That was just the first introduction to the industry was that Flip This House conference. They actually talked a little bit about multifamily at that. You know, it was like a three-day thing. I was more interested in the more passive side of it. So I went down the, the apartment rabbit hole and then joined a couple of education platforms. We did get into flipping and uh, we've done... Oh, half a dozen, maybe eight 
Okay. Together, Darren has done more than I have through his career. Mm-hmm. Largely, we did that for the transactional side of the income. The passive income for multifamily is kind of a slow grind till you get to a reasonable number. And having done, you know, we left our jobs. We did every financial trick to try and scrape capital together from a pretty modest middle income history and flipping houses gave us decent chunks of money to give us some runway. Yeah. I, I think that's that's one thing that uh, a lot of people realize when they're flipping houses, you know, it's it does give you chunks of income and it does give you a lot a lot of flexibility. But something else you mentioned that uh, that I'd like to highlight is multifamily, I think it's a lot better at building passive income and it does take a while. It's not a get rich quick scheme, but it does definitely take a while. And I think your path is is very similar to a lot of people listening for one thing. So, now you mentioned your first multifamily property. I think you called it a beast or a bear. I don't remember which which one, but one of those words. Can you shed some light on that one? You know, why was it uh, so difficult? Yeah, my first one, I actually invested passively. So that's kind of how I got to look behind the curtain of syndications. We did a passive investment. And then our first active one uh, was a bear on paper. It was your typical value add. What happened in reality was we went 100% vacant and had uh, significant contractor problems. And uh, we made money in the end, mm-hmm. not as much as we had projected, but it was quite a bit of a slog. It took yeah. about two years, but we were able to exit it with a, with the profit. And most of the uh, value was through the experience, not in the money side of it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, typically, I ask the experienced investor to deep dive on a property. Do you want to deep dive on this one, or is there another one you want to talk about? We could talk about, let's deep dive on that one, because we've had, you know, I don't think the horror stories are talked about enough. And <laughs> I, is it yeah. truly a horror story if we made money? No, but there's a lot of survivorship bias in this business. So we've had plenty of success, but yeah, we could talk about the one that knocked yeah. us around a bit. So you say on paper it was the classic value add. You you, you think you when you buy, it, I assume you're going to go. Your your plan is to go in, fix things up, raise rents, keep occupancy up, and you know just finish the value add. And you said occupancy went to zero. What happened there? It was basically an inherited landlord wife of the original owner. Owner had passed away, so now she had it. It was running about eighty five percent occupied. Mm-hmm. Well below rents, uh, you know, not managed properly, uh, you know, just all of that stuff that you see is like, oh yeah, that's you know, it'd be a great value add. What we didn't foresee was that the rents were so low that as we tried to implement a rehab plan, three buildings, we were going to vacate one building at a time and just go around in a circle and make, you know, everything was great. Uh, as we started to implement the plan to non-renew people, mm-hmm. the word got out that change was coming. And there was just a mass exodus. Ooh, yeah. So so we underestimated the transitory nature of the tenant base. Mm-hmm. If average rent is whatever it was, 350 or 400 in a in a nine hundred dollar market, mm-hmm. their motivation is to stay in whatever place is charging them 350, 400 dollars. So they just left. Yeah. Yeah. And so- then at, at that point, right, there was significant construction going on because all of the outside decks were basically, uh, they were wood and or concrete and were deflecting. They were actually under notice from the city to, you need, there, there were screw jacks mm-hmm. pulling them up. 
So that was part of their motivation to sell is like, you need to do something about this or, you know, potentially yep. you're, you're, you're facing condemnation. So at that point, we just ripped off the bandaid and went to full on construction mode. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I've, I've done several value adds before. And, you know, w- when we come into properties like this, um, there are pros and cons to, to what, what you ended up with. I don't think anybody plans on going to zero occupancy, but, uh, you know, when we look at, you know, coming in with a property that has below market rents, you know, I always try to pick a, a rental point to incentivize a small portion of the people to get out because you want people to turn over. You want you want units to come available and you want to to renovate everything. But uh, um, I, I don't think you ever want everybody to move out at once. Um yeah. So, yeah, that's that's something that's hard to predict. I've never I've never had that happen before. Um, we we usually had a nice, easy, you know, incremental move out. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't recommend it. Yeah. Um. Un- unless <laughs> there there are people that do that. There are there are people that do that very intentionally, and that's yes. part of their business plan theoretically from from day one. Yeah. Uh, which that was not the case for us. So, uh, you know, it became a okay. Uh, yeah, you know, it was such a barrier. Like, hey, we moved down here to help Darren, you know, run the show. Yeah, and and when you when you're doing that intentionally, you, you're you probably start with you know a lot more money, you know, on the sidelines, a lot more right. money to keep the property yeah, yeah. moving and and operating and to pay all the bills and everything else. But yeah, if, if you're not intending on vacating the property and it happens, you know, you, you got to start juggling and, and making things happen. So, um, and this was 62 units, so mm-hmm. it wasn't you know. It wasn't a small property yeah. to 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 have that much. It basically almost turned into a development job. Mm-hmm. All right. So you guys flipped the switch and you just went full on construction mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, How did it go from there? Uh, we had problems with the contractor. They uh, mm-hmm. they didn't do stuff to code. Uh, so a lot of that work had to be redone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on a bridge loan. So miraculously, we were able to refinance from bridge to bridge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's done very often, but we pulled it off. So there were there were multiple points in the process where we're like, well, you know, here it is, we're sunk. And then you just, you know, a lot of lessons on perseverance and just uh Absolutely. keep asking, keep asking, and you know, you yeah. find somebody that can help you out. Now was this a syndication or was this uh no, it was a, it was a joint venture. So okay. there's small group. All right. And and you mentioned the the learning aspect from there. What what would you say your biggest learning point from that uh that project was? A lot of it had to do with uh vetting. Uh, there's so many even kind of vetting contractors, you know, making sure you have the proper budget. A lot of it is a little more holistic in the sense that, you know, when you when you see a property that's 75, 80, 85% occupied. Yeah, there's opportunity there, but there may be some underlying things that we didn't think about specifically. It's like, what is this tenant class? What's their motivation? You know, there were really no sophisticated leases holding anybody there. So their incentives were were not to stay there and pay rent. Yeah, it was virtually impossible to collect on them anyway. Yep. So, you know, just be very aware that the worst case scenario even though we didn't hit the worst case scenario we you know we came pretty close yeah 
it can happen. And you said in, in the end, you ended up selling the property and, and making money. Was it stabilized? Did you get, uh, did you finish the value? Add? No, we, yeah, we ended up getting through two or three buildings. And at that point, capital was tight. We mm-hmm. start doing that financial engineering analysis type thing. It's like, yeah, even if we finish this, we'll, we'll be able to refi mm-hmm. with a reasonable or any return. And then even if we refi, we'll probably still be capital poor mm-hmm. to you know, to nest egg the, the project along. So we got some brokers' opinions of value. At that time, you know, when did we sell this? A couple of years ago, the market was fine. I had no apprehension in saying we got saved by the market to a large extent. You know, <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we got two-thirds of the way through it, put it on the market, yeah. somebody saw it. And then, you know, because the, the business end was proven at that point. Yeah. So they just had to perform to our internal comps. Yeah. for the rest of the building. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of ran out of gas and somebody else can come in with new capital and yeah. and uh, take it the rest of the way. Yeah, that's something that's, I think, very beneficial as a buyer when you're looking at something that's partially renovated. You said the, the magic word for me that the self comps, you know, you can look at the units and say, yeah. this is what the new units are getting. And there's no guesswork there anymore. It's just like they're renovating units they're putting new tenants in. I know exactly what the potential rents are on this because they're hitting it. And yeah. you can come in and from the new buyer's perspective, that's much less of a risk than where you guys started. And quite frankly, in in a market that's that's appreciating, like we saw from, you know, I, I came in the business in 2018, but I say 2018 to 21 and probably earlier in an appreciating market like that, you know, some of the value adds, some of the meat on the bone properties actually, you know, sold for a higher price for, for a little bit of a premium because people are looking. Yeah, we were paid for other people's hopes and dreams. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just how the market works, you know? Yeah. And when things are really, really rosy, people have lofty hopes and dreams and prices get bid up based on people's hopes. And well, yeah. And, you know, sub 4% interest rates certainly makes a lot more business plans viable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you can get three points something on your interest rate, you know, it's, it's just like, yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah. So, well, cool. Appreciate you for sharing that. And, you know, I, I think you you also said that sometimes these types of deals don't get talked about enough. And there is a survivorship bias, you know, people who, yeah. you know, crash and burn don't talk about it and they leave, you know, they don't uh, spend a lot of time right. in this business. So, Good point there as well. Shifting gears slightly, I'd like to ask everybody a little bit about their motivation, something I call their big burning why. So what is your big burning why? I just say it's optionality. Mm-hmm. You know, I did the W-2 thing for 20 years. We were very intentional at that time with how we wanted to raise a family, one parent at home, which ended up being my wife, Kim. And then as we transitioned, we actually switched roles. I quit the job. She got full-time, and then I was able to go back and forth. Ultimately, I just at some point wanted to live where I wanted to live. And you still have to show up for your partner, show up for your tenants, for that matter. But to some extent, you know, we wanted to be calling the shots for our own destiny a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And even just, so, you know, what is it? It's the 2nd of January. We were in Arizona. You know, hanging out with my mom and dad. We were still working, mm-hmm. but we didn't have to ask anybody if we want, you know, if we could go. We just yeah. went. I love that. I mean, there's pros and cons to everything. And, you know, having quit my W 2, you know, a year and a half ago, there's some things that, you know, it is nice having that paycheck every other, every other week or twice a month. But, you know, there, there's benefits on both sides of the fence. And I, I quite enjoy it on the side I'm on right now. So, Never asking anybody for permission and uh, being able to do what you want, work from you want, where you want, live where you want. 
I love well, it. I mean, we're very, very active in mm-hmm. most of our deals. We straight up work more now than yeah. we ever did doing yeah. W two. Just oh. I do too. I do. For sure. Working working for yourself is 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 a lot nicer than than working for somebody else. I guess one of the one of the downsides, and you know, maybe from my wife's perspective, is you know, I had a job, you know, that I used to bring home at night, and now that I work from home, you know, I'm always at work. So there's there is that as well. So achieving the balance is in some ways easier, some ways not, in my perspective. But well, cool. Well, last question for you: What's up next for you? Scale. Mm-hmm. I mentioned before, we're property managing a a small portion of our portfolio, 65 units over two properties, a couple hours apart from each other. Mm -hmm. And and that ranges its own set of challenges with having, uh, you know, the the labor resources for a 31 unit property versus a 108 unit property type Mm -hmm. thing. So, you know, we've, we've always heard that, you know, scale is better, scale is better to some extent. You know, we were taking what the market was giving us for opportunity for where we were in our business, but mm-hmm. we are far more focused on either buying larger properties or properties in close enough proximity to the stuff that we're already managing to mm-hmm. get scale that way. Awesome. Well, best of luck to you. And, you know, today's second day of the new year, and hopefully you guys can crush 2023 and, and make progress towards all that. That said, we're going to shift gears one more time and welcome Alex to the show. So Alex, welcome and thanks for hanging out. Thank you so much. I appreciate you letting me on. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, show wouldn't go on without you. So I appreciate you for being on here. Do us a favor and tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, so I graduated college about two years ago. I kind of, since I was probably in middle school, in the back of my head, always was thinking that I was going to end up in real estate. I didn't know what capacity that would be in. So kind of coming out of college, my foot in the door was real estate sales with the intention of you know turning into a full-time investor down the road. I looked at property management, looked at sales. I wanted to learn how to sell. Also, you know, how to work with people well, you know, manage my own time, my own money. And it's definitely taught me that so far. So kind of my plan at the moment is then to, in 2023, acquire my first deal. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great time. I, I think, you know, once again, first part of the year, a lot of people are making New Year's resolutions. I think 2023 is going to be a great year and hopefully there's a lot of buying opportunities. And I'll tell you, you got plenty of runway between, you know, January 2nd when we're recording and December 31st. So just keep on pushing towards that goal and I'm sure you're going to get there. Speaking of, something that helps people get their goals is having a good solid why. So what would you say your big burning why is? I think it's very similar to what Greg said. I think it's just having the option to do um, other things than wake up and have to go to work, Mm -hmm. right? I think for me, if I want to down the road, focus on impact instead of income, have that option. And I think kind of my short term why is supplemental income for the sales job. You know, it can be unpredictable at times. And I think consistency from a multifamily asset, I think would uh, really kind of help me get through those periods where maybe sales are slow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's it for me. Yeah. If you invest properly and I think Greg mentioned this up front, it takes time to build that. But uh, once you have it built, it's a really nice thing to have. You know, it's really nice to have those those monthly checks coming in that are going to come in whether you work or not. That's something that is definitely worth putting some time and effort into. So Alex, that said, we got Greg on the line. What do you want to ask him? First question on kind of that first deal, the 62 units on the financing side, was it 
difficult coming out of being a W-2 coming into commercial investing? Was it difficult to get that first loan or were you able to rely on your partner? Well, it was really about relying on the rest of the group, how they appear to lenders. I did not say that very well, but I think, you know, in a we're looked at not only as a property, but we're looked at as a group of investors. So the net worth and liquidity doesn't necessarily have to do with an individual. It has to do with the group that is buying the property. I guess that's one aspect of why partnering can be important because you may have the net worth, you may not have the liquidity, or you may have the skill set, but you don't have any money. So that's that's where the partnership kind of helped out with. So we were, you know, Darren and I and Kim were very much boots on the ground. There were other people in the partnership that were not, but they brought uh, more net worth and liquidity to the table. Yeah, I see. And along kind of the lines with the partnership, kind of getting started out and trying to decide, you know, should I go in by myself? So should I actively look for a partner? What are some maybe red flags that I should look for if I go the partner route? Red flags, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I've never done a background check on one of my partners, I, mm. but I did know them all prior to uh, investing with them. So I wouldn't be quick to partner with people. I would get to know them one way or the other. And, you know, and my specific example is they were all part of the uh, education platform mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. came up together. So, you know, we were all familiar with each other, had interacted to some extent one or the, you know, one way or the other. And you have to be uh, comfortable with the person, not only what they can bring to the table. I'd say, you know, a lot of people will do something similar, you know, on their first deal, they'll they'll partner with people, especially in education programs, they'll partner with people in the education program. And I would say that just remember, you know, a partnership on a first deal, you guys are coming together for one deal. It doesn't mean you have to partner on future deals, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's something I did something similar, came up with a partnership out of the mentorship program I was in, we did one deal together. We liked each other and we decided to do several more. So I'm, I'm going to answer it from a slightly different perspective, like longevity. Greg said, you know, be slow to get a partner or to form partnerships. And I think maybe I I formed it a little fast and didn't really make sure that we were completely aligned. You know, had some really good partners, very talented individuals. But something I would say is if you're going to turn into a long-term partnership, you know, make sure there's alignment. Make sure you guys are going the same direction. You want the same things. I think it's a lot easier to make a partnership like that on one deal because you come up with a business plan and like, here's our business plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's where, how we're going to handle it. And here's how we're going to make decisions if things don't work out. But if you're trying to get into a longer term partnership, I think you better make sure you're aligned. And like Greg said, you know, be slow to partner up. Yeah. And you'll figure out along the way, you'll partner with people. Hopefully things go well enough. But as you go through that process, you'll figure out who you want to continue to, to work with. You know, they'll be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we have to get along well enough to run a business. We don't have to go out to dinner every Friday night and hang out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I like that. You have to get well enough to run a business. Uh, I, I think that's uh, that's very, very accurate. Yeah. Another question um, on kind of the underwriting side, you know, a lot of people starting out, you know, they don't know what they don't know. What are some kind of unexpected expenses that, you know, maybe rookie investors don't account for in underwriting? Yeah. Property taxes is a big one. That can be very 
market specific. You have to know how they're assessed, when they're assessed, because you may specifically have to input that line item into a particular year in your underwriting when the reassessment happens. You know, I know in Texas, I don't invest there, but they chase property taxes uh, pretty aggressively compared to, you know, some counties in Tennessee, they only reassess like every eight years. It's actually quite easier to yeah. figure out what's going on in Tennessee. But you, and you you do just have to know. And property taxes can be weird in some ways too. You know, in Chattanooga, there's some special use taxes related to how much uh, parking lot acreage you have hmm. um, that don't always show up very easily. Uh, and then there's, you know, uh, special assessments that also fall off. So if you can pick up that you are mm-hmm. subject to some special assessment for like a water project that started whatever, eight years ago, yeah. and a portion of that property tax is sunsetting, that might be something you have to remove. So um, that's a big one for me. Uh, insurance, that's another big one. I don't care what the current person is paying for insurance. I don't know how well they're insured they are. So that's something we quote often and we quote early. Um, And uh, if you're doing agency debt, they're going to hand you a piece of paper with the insurance requirements. So you have to make sure you're getting things quoted correctly to begin with. Um, So yeah, that's, that's a big one. And that I see a lot of just general and administrative stuff not showing up on people's underwriting. We have professional services for tax preparation and bookkeeping. And, you know, sometimes I don't see that showing up specifically. Yeah, yeah there, there's and, something something about taking the previous owner's expenses from the T12 and just transferring them over. And I, I think a lot of people do that. Um, it's it's a great starting point, but you you have to do a little bit of verification. You have to make sure that uh, you understand each line. And um, something Greg mentioned, you have to understand that you're going to operate the property differently than them. You know, like yeah. with the bookkeeping, with the admin type stuff. You know, um, they they may do their own bookkeeping and not have a, a separate line item for it, um, or they may be, be performing a lot of the administrative stuff, whereas you might hire out for for some of that. But uh, um, uh, Greg, Greg hit my, my two top items, you know, property tax and, and insurance are the two biggest things that I think people, two biggest pitfalls on insurance and, um, third one, he also hit, you know, just make sure you realize you're going to operate the property differently than them and make sure the things you plan to do differently are reflected in the underwriting. Hmm. Yeah. And then another one, like specifically to value add is utilities. Yeah, you know, if if somebody's running stuff at ninety five percent occupied, you can't just transfer over that utilities if you're planning it on going and rehabbing mm-hmm. a third of the units because you're going to have a lot more carrying costs just to keep the lights on and the water on for your vendors. So utilities can be a little underestimated, mm-hmm. um, specific to you know heavy value add stuff. That's a good point. I'm I'm actually building an underwriting class right now, and I. Did not put that in there anywhere. All right. Boom. There you go. Boom. Yeah. That podcast totally worth it today. Make <laughs> a note, throw that in my underwriting, you know, higher, higher carrying costs. And, and it's something, you know, I, I think we we've seen the utility bills and I've I've seen the, you know, I, I've seen the utility bills come in when we're on when we're, you know, managing properties and I've seen things go up. Um, it's just not something that uh um 
I specifically called out. So appreciate that, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. I learned something every episode. And that was that was uh um one one big aha for me. So um anyway, Alex, back to you. Yeah. Um, Greg, you know, if you had to start again kind of at zero, and you know, maybe if you're in my shoes, you know, I'm 23 years old, um, I'm an independent contractor, you know, so I'm a 1099. Um is there maybe something you would have done differently or do you have some advice for me getting started out? I mean, there's no regrets. I don't know if there's stuff I would have done differently because I would only be framing that from knowledge that I have now that I, I didn't have at the time. So um, I would just say, you know, just get started, just start doing it. I mean, that's where all the learning starts. I, I, I came up underwriting originally because I was in Alaska. I was going to be doing property tours. I did some property tours myself, but you know, there's only so much I could do. So I, I kind of went down the underwriting path for, you know, what skill could I bring to a partnership? As soon as you get handed those keys, you know, that underwriting is very informative, but you know, now you're dealing with people in the real world and pandemics and cold snaps and things like that. So I think most of the learning happens when you actually get into a property. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I I started out with single family properties and I probably spent two years, you know, going over books and thinking about it and, you know, trying to, hey, is this the right way to do things? And once I pulled the trigger, the the learning really started. And I did the same thing with multifamily. You know, I I would say, you know, with, with what Greg said, same thing is is just get started. You know, you you can read books and and listen to podcasts. This is a great podcast to listen to, by the way. But listen to podcasts, read books, do all of that. But just get started. You know, find find something that you can do. Find a place you can get involved and get started. And that's going to help you a lot. You know, getting the ball. Yeah, going. it's like you you can't go to a seminar to learn how to ride a bike. You know, yeah. that's one of my favorite things. It's- you just got to get on the bike at some point, figure it out. Good analogy. It's a really good analogy. And speaking of podcasts, Greg, do you guys still run your podcast? No, man. We shut her down. Okay. We, yeah. We did a hundred million episodes and uh-huh. we did our last episode a couple of weeks ago. But the Real Well Solution podcast is still out there for people to consume. But uh, but no more new episodes. The, the return on effort wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, anyway, another good podcast to check out, uh, Real Wealth, Real Wealth, Real Wealth podcast, and Greg and his partner ran it uh, together. You know, quick plug for that. You know, go check it out. Um, and you know, while while it's still early in 2023, the episodes are still pretty pretty fresh. So mm-hmm. check it out. All right, Alex, back to you. We probably got time for one question, maybe two, if we're short on our answers. Okay. Yeah. Another one I had was, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as we've come into 2023 and then going into 2024. What do y'all kind of see on the multifamily side? Interest rates are going to be high for the foreseeable future. You're either going to have to bring more money to the deal or beat people up on price, planning on having to do both. So we're, we're seeing some movement on price. I know you want to try and keep the answer short, but I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Give us your your thoughts. And I think we're good. Well, there's fewer sellers, but I think there's the same amount of buyers. So that's going to do nothing for the old supply and demand. There's just more money chasing fewer deals. So I don't necessarily think that's going to help pricing that much. And and the cap rates are maybe I've given a little back, but I mean, fundamentally, it's still a very strong asset class. So I think you'll be seeing more seller financing. 
available. We've had that on a couple of deals, yeah. but it can be a little tricky because anecdotally, I'm hearing from capital raisers that capital is a little bit harder to come by for deals. And at the same time, you're also having to raise more equity. So mm-hmm. those yeah. are two challenging things that uh, are kind of stacked. Yeah. I, I think a lot of signs are pointing towards, you know, prices have to come down. You know, the capital markets are a little more difficult to navigate. You know, the, the stock market hasn't done well in the last 12 months. You know, crypto, the, that bubble kind of burst, you know, so there's a lot less liquidity there. What I found on the last capital raise we did is, is exactly what Greg said, that, uh, you know, there there's less people sitting on stacks of cash right now. I think prices have to come down and, and the longer rates stay high, the more likely they are to come down that those cap rates are to adjust. And personally, I think, you know, a, a year ago when the Fed started raising rates, all the owners in the world said, oh, that's cute, you know, and all all the owners in the world thought that they were going to, that the Fed was, was going to do a quick pivot, you know, okay, we'll raise rates for, you know, one or two quarters and they'll come crashing back down. But, you know, a year later, the Fed's still raising rates and still signaling they're going to raise rates. So I think, I think a lot of the, the resistance for the, for pricing, why, why pricing stayed high is everyone was expecting the pivot and everyone's expecting, you know, that, that interest rates to be temporarily high, but the longer the rates are high, the harder it is for sellers to to justify those costs or those those prices. So I think prices are going to come down. You know, looking at my crystal ball, I, I looked at what the Fed chairman says. Does he always do what he says? No, but they're going to bring rates back down towards the end of this year, twenty twenty four. They want to have rates in 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 the range, in the four range, and then in twenty twenty five and beyond. You know, their target's two point five. So what I see is a year of high interest rates and them gradually coming off that mark in in the future. So I think I think 2023 is going to be a great year to buy. That's that's just my two cents. And then 2024 and 25 when when rates start coming down, that's just going to be throwing fuel on the fire. Anyway, my two cents. We'll we'll see. My my crystal ball is rarely accurate. So <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, the Fed doesn't give a crap about what I think about their policies. The economy doesn't care what I think about it. So, I mean, you always just have to operate in whatever the the environment is. So, you know, have your buy box, have your fundamentals and stick to them. There can be a tendency to, you know, that whole FOMO thing, Mm -hmm. I I think is real. I'm sure I've been a victim of it myself at times. But, yeah, just, hey, here's, here's what I can pay. Here's why. And it's it's a lot easier now to back up those price justifications yeah. with data because for a long time I'm like, am I the only one that thinks this property is only worth X and it always trades over ask? I'm like, what is going on? There's there's a lot more of us that our reasonableness is becoming louder. Yeah, I, I think Greg, you, you made a great point. You, you said the word fundamental. That I've been thinking about a lot lately is. You know what? What are the fundamentals of real estate? And there's different. We, we have market cycles, and there, there are different phases of the cycle. And the people who are in trouble right now are the people who did not look at the downside protection. You know, the people who are getting yeah. in trouble right now are the ones that had variable rate loans with no rate caps or no exit plan. They didn't look at the downside. They they bought into the euphoria, and they said, "Yeah, this bridge loan is going to work. We'll be able to refinance in two years." And did it anticipate rates going up? So I think when you look at the fundamentals, you know, you, you got to have, I think, kind of a longer window than two to three years, like a lot of the bridge debt 
you know, will give you, you have to do some sort of downside protection, you know, like rate cap insurance, I, I think is going to be a lot more. That's something that, you know, I'm going to make sure I get no matter what the uh, Fed interest rate wins are looking like is is rate cap insurance. But uh, so far, I, I've been able, I've been in 12 properties and only one bridge loan, only one true bridge loan out of the 12. So, so far, so good. I, I think we were fortunate in in that aspect. Anyway, we are about out of time. So one last question for each of you. Greg, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, there's still episodes of the Real Wealth Solutions podcast out there, all on your your favorite provider. You can reach us or you know find out what we're up to at realwealth.solutions is our our main page for everything that we're we're kind of up to. I'm more active on LinkedIn, so reach out to me, Greg Scully, on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. Prefer longer conversations to uh, to shorter ones. That's it. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. I right, love it. So we'll have the website and a link to his the podcast and his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Alex, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, social media is probably best. Instagram, it's alex.darst.realtor. And then LinkedIn, it's Alex Darst Realtor. And um, you know, I'll check my messages if you send me a DM. All right. Sounds good. And we'll have links to those in the show notes as well. Well, once again, guys, thank you very much for making this a part of your holiday weekend and look forward to uh, getting this out on the airways. But uh, thanks for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Good right. time, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.